You know, if, if you were going to write a story or tell a story of like this one time some great leader or not so great leader led people through kind of an impressive project, if you were going to tell that story or write that story, you wouldn't end that story the way Nehemiah ends his story. The book of Nehemiah has been the story of Nehemiah, who wasn't born in the homeland, in Israel. He was born in Persia. He served the king there. And God worked on his heart to move to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls around Jerusalem and then lead the people through something of a revival, lead the people back to the Lord. And that story really kind of culminated in chapter 12. That's really where that story ends. We studied that two weeks ago, chapters 11 and 12. Nehemiah, that the walls were completed and, and he had brought people back to the Lord and they were so dedicated that now that the, the walls around Jerusalem are finished, it's safer to live there. They had something of a lottery, like a draft, where they picked at random, one out of every 10 families to leave where, they, where they're living and move into Jerusalem, build a new house, start a new life. So that, And there were thousands of people that did this so that Jerusalem would be repopulated by people who loved the Lord and were dedicated to his promises. And, and then they had this huge dedication service for those walls. And that's really the end of the story. And it was an incredible high note. And if I were telling this story about myself, I stopped the story there. And Nehemiah doesn't. Nehemiah adds chapter 13, which is something of an appendix. And, and most everything that we're going to read today when we read this passage happened years later. Years after the walls were dedicated. And, and he wouldn't have been being dishonest by not including this. It's not like this book pretends to tell his whole life story. You've got to start a story somewhere, and you've got to end a story somewhere. And as the author, he can pick where that story st- starts and stops. And Nehemiah adds, this appendix doesn't make him look very good. It's certainly not a happy ending. It's, it's not the, and we all lived happily ever after. It's not that at all. One thing, one thing I love about the books of the Bible, the authors of the Bible, when they tell these stories, they are so honest. They tell probably more tragedies and shortfalls and mess-ups than they tell triumphs <laughs> about themselves. Like nothing to hide. And today, it can be a little bit confusing to grasp the timeline. So I'm going to, I want to tell you what we're going to read when we read Nehemiah chapter 13. The chapter begins with something of a flashback. Here's what Nehemiah is going to start and basically say, Hey, remember that one time where we all got together and read the Bible? And we found out as a people that we were doing stuff we weren't supposed to be doing, like marrying foreigners. Right? He's going to start with that. Then there's, there's a time gap of an unknown number of years 
And what happens in those unknown number of years is Nehemiah moves back to Persia. He moves to Babylon, which is under Persian control. He goes back to work for the king. And then after who knows how many years, he comes back to Jerusalem. And chapter 13 is the story of what he found. And you know what he found? The spiritual wheels had fallen off while he was gone. That's the story that we're going to read today. It's an appendix. It's years later. It's so admirable that he would even write it on here. And here's what we're going to sort of discover or look for. As Nehemiah writes this list of problems, he shows back up and he's like, ooh, that's wrong. That ain't right. I don't like that. I'm going to call that the list of the symptoms. Okay, like Jerusalem has gotten sick and he's going to give us the symptoms. And I want to share with you what I think the real problem is because you and I can't have all of the same symptoms, but we can have the same problem. And we do have the same problem. And then I, because we share their problem, I want to share with you at the end what I think the solution to that underlying problem might be. Does that make sense? We're going to look at the symptoms, the problem, and the solutions together this morning. Let's read it first. We're going to read all of Nehemiah chapter 13. This is the New American Standard Bible that I is on the screen as in the Bible, the few Bibles in front of you. They, it goes like this. Nehemiah 13. On that day they read aloud from the book of Moses in the hearing of all the people. And there was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter into the assembly of God because the Ammonites and Moabites did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water, but they hired Balaam against them to curse them. That's a history lesson. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So when they heard from the law, the people, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. That happened back in chapters 8, 9, and 10. That was during the revival. Here's the time gap in the story. And then we read this. Now prior to this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, being related to Tobiah, had prepared a large room for Tobiah where formerly they used to put all the grain offerings, the frankincense, the utensils, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil prescribed for the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. But during all this time, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king over Babylon, I, I had gone to the king. And after some time, however, I asked leave from the king, verse 7, and I came back to Jerusalem and learned about the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. It was very displeasing to me. So I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Then I gave an order that they, and they cleansed the rooms and I returned there the utensils of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. I also discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given them, so that the Levites and the singers who performed the service had gone away, each to his own field. Verse 11, So I reprimanded the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And then I gathered them together and restored them to their posts. All Judah then brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. 
In charge of the storehouses, I appointed Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Pedaiah of the Levites. And in addition to them was Hanan, son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable. And it was their task to dis- distribute to their kinsmen, the Levites and the priests. Verse 14, remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out my loyal deeds, which I have performed for the house of my God and its services. In those days I saw in Judah some who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys as well as wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads. And they brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I admonished them on the day they sold food. Also men of Tyre were living there who imported fish and all kinds of merchandise and sold to the sons of Judah on the Sabbath, even in Jerusalem. Then I reprimanded the nobles of Judah, saying to them, What is this evil thing you are doing by profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do the same so that our God brought on us and on this city all this trouble? Yet you are adding to the wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Verse 19, It came about that just as it grew dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and they, they should not open them until after the Sabbath. Then I stationed some of my servants at the gates so that no load would enter on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the traders and the merchants of every kind of merchandise spent the night outside of Jerusalem. And then I warned them and said to them, why do you spend the night in front of the wall? If you do that again, I will use force against you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come as gatekeepers to sanctify the Sabbath day. For this also remember me, O my God, and have compassion on me according to the greatness of your loving kindness. Verse 23, in those days, I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. As for their children, come on thing, here we go. Verse 24, as for their children... Half of them spoke in the language of Ashdod. None of them were able to speak the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. So I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take of their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations, there was no king like Solomon. He was loved by his God, and he made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused him, even him, to sin. Do we then hear about you that you have committed all this great evil by acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? Even one of the sons of Joida, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. So I drove him away from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I purified them from everything foreign and appointed duties for the priests and the Levites, each in his task. And I arranged for the supply of wood at the appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. And that's how the book of Nehemiah ends. So upon returning to Jerusalem, after years being gone, Nehemiah begins to find all these things that are wrong in and around the city. 
The first one we read about, I'm calling these the symptoms of the disease. The first one we read about in verses 4 through 9 and then also in verse 28 is that the temple system had been compromised. The temple system, the temple complex, and the priesthood had been compromised. Let me explain what I mean by that. The high priest was a guy named Eliashib. He's only called a priest in verse 4 through 9, but two other places in the book he's called the high priest, so we know he is. Eliashib, here's what he did. While Nehemiah was gone, he gave one of Nehemiah's enemies, a guy named Tobiah, he gave him something of an office inside the temple. He took a a room that was a storeroom, and what what the storeroom was supposed to house was the articles of worship, which would have been things like uh, lampstands and and tables and and frankincense and, and, and incense and things like that. And also was supposed to house the tithes people were supposed to be bringing to support the Levites and the priests. Eliashib cleared all that stuff out of there and let one of Nehemiah's enemies move in there and have like an office space in the temple. Um, Tobiah, it's been a long time since we read about him. In the first half of the book, he was one of the guys trying to keep the walls from being built. He's not an Israelite. He's an Ammonite. He's not supposed to, nobody's supposed to have an office in that room, much less an Ammonite. He was somebody that, before Nehemiah showed up, wielded a lot of influence in the region, and as soon as Nehemiah left town, it's like he got right back in there. Another way the priesthood was perverted, if you look at verse 28, you'll see that the high priest, Eliashib, gave one of his grandchildren away to be married to a grandchild of another of Nehemiah's enemies, Sanballat the Horonite. This would have been a, a political alliance marriage. So the high priest has become something of a traitor. And Nehemiah said that this hurts him really bad, is basically what he said. And I want to show you why this would have been so painful for Nehemiah. If you've been here as we've studied this, chapter 3 was a big list of who worked where on the wall. Do you remember that? Not the most exciting passage in the entire Bible, but it's a list that says, all right, these people worked on this section of the wall, and then these people worked on this section of the wall, and then these people worked on this section of the wall. Guess who was listed as the very first worker on the wall? Leader of the people leading by example. Eliashib the high priest. Here's how chapter 3 starts. Then Eliashib the high priest and his brothers the priests rolled up their sleeves and built the wall and dedicated it to the Lord. And by the time we get to chapter 13, as soon as Nehemiah leaves town, this guy basically climbs into bed with Nehemiah's enemies. That's why Nehemiah says this, it hurt me bad. I was bitterly grieved. I was greatly upset. So there's symptom number one. The temple complex has been sort of compromised. The priesthood has been perverted. The high priest is a traitor. Symptom number two is this. Nehemiah looks in that storeroom and there's not grain in there. He realizes the giving has stopped. Here's, here's what he finds. The Levites, and therefore the priests, who are supposed to exist 
exist and be, be sustained on people's grain tithes, they've had to go back out in the country and find jobs because there's not money to support them anymore. Um, if the Levites aren't supported, we know the priests aren't supported. Here, here's the way this was supposed to work. The Levites received the tithes. Then the Levites were supposed to tithe that and give it to the priests. So if the Levites aren't supported, the priests aren't supported either. But there are still priests there under the high priest. But now guess who they are dependent upon for their sustenance? Tobiah, the guy in the storeroom, has the temple checkbook. (laughs) It's a further perversion of the priesthood. Now, here's what I can't tell by reading this. This is a chicken or the egg scenario. Here's what I can't tell. Did the giving stop because Eliashib the high priest perverted the temple and people went, I'm not giving there? Or did people stop giving and Eliashib had to find money someplace and he went to a bad place looking for it? I can't tell. But here's what I know. Oftentimes, a symptom of spiritual wandering, waning, is when sacrificial giving becomes less of a priority. Seems like it doesn't make much sense and I could do much better things with my money. And Nehemiah notices this right away. That's symptom number two. Symptom number three. It's a big chapter. I've got to go through these quickly. Symptom number three is that the Sabbath laws are being violated. Nehemiah comes back and he notices on Saturday that people are making wine. They're loading their donkey carts up. They're, they're doing everything but opening shop and selling stuff on the Sabbath. They're either buying from foreigners on the Sabbath. In this symptom and on the next one, Nehemiah starts kind of yelling at people history lessons. When he notices they're violating the Sabbath, he goes, don't you people remember our history? Look around. Jerusalem's still kind of in rubble. You know why? Because our ancestors violated the Sabbath and married foreigners and God let our enemies come in and destroy this place. We are doing the stuff that got us in this, got our ancestors in this mess in the first place. I mentioned this quote several weeks ago, but it's, it's so good and so appropriate. I want to say it again. Aldous Huxley wrote that men do not learn very much from the lessons of history is the most important of all the lessons of history. If history teaches us anything, it's that we don't learn from our history. So they've forgotten this vow. If you remember chapters 8, 9, and 10, the people stood up and they promised God, Oh God, we're going to stop doing stuff on the Sabbath and we're going to stop marrying foreigners as soon as Nehemiah leaves town. Right back after it. And symptom four is that the people are once again marrying foreigners and giving their children in marriage to foreigners. Now, why this was a sin for this specific people to marry non-Jews. Um, if you're interested in why that was a sin for them, like I would never stand up here and say, you can't marry someone from another country. That would be weird and nonsense and unbiblical. 
Um, but if you're interested in why this was a sin, I dealt with it a little more deeply in the, the, the sermon on chapter 10. If you want to look that up on our website or on our SoundCloud page, and you can hear why that's a sin. Short version is this. God promised this distinct nation will be around and exist until the Messiah comes, until he can bless the whole world through this distinct nation. And when Israel married themselves away into other nations, it never, it never works that you marry someone who doesn't care about your God and it'll all work out at the end, in the end. It just doesn't work. And he sees that. The, the, the bit in here where he said, I, I saw the kids from these marriages don't even speak our language. The foreign language wasn't the problem. That's a symptom. They, they married people who weren't all in with Israel. They're still Ammonite. They're raising their kids as Moabites. And it's one more family that's just going to be gone. And here's the history lesson from this one. He brings up King Solomon. I love this. I'll paraphrase Nehemiah's argument this way. You people that are marrying foreigners, King Solomon was the smartest Israelite there ever was, was the wisest Israelite, was the richest. He wrote scripture. He talked with God. He built the temple. And he wasn't strong enough to make marrying foreign wives work out in his life. Please tell me how you think it's going to work for you. And then he rips some people's hair out. I like that part. I would say, go for it. Give it a try. You better have really small fingers if you're going to tear my hair out, buddy. All right, so those are the symptoms. Nehemiah comes back to town, and he finds out the the temple complex has been compromised, and the priesthood's been perverted. Um, People aren't giving, so the Levites and the priests aren't being supported. Sabbath violation had become routine, and people are marrying foreign wives, culminating in the high priest's family even being involved in marrying non-Israelites. And those read like the problems, but I will contend those are only the symptoms. The real problem, always our real problem is sin, right? Our real problem is always, always, always sin. But I want to state their problem this way. The real problem was that the people didn't own their own faith. The real problem while Nehemiah was gone, is that the, re, the, the, the regular people, individuals, didn't own their own faith. Here's why I say that was the problem. If you read back through Nehemiah 13, check this out. Later on, read through this chapter and tell me if this isn't true. The way it reads is that the real problem was Nehemiah's absence. That's the way it reads. Chapters 2 through 12, Nehemiah was here, and everything worked great, and everybody was dedicated to the Lord, and people were generous and sacrificial, and they worked, and they looked out for one another, but Nehemiah left, and then the wheels fell off. So you know what the problem was? Nehemiah was gone. Nehemiah's absence was the problem. That's the way it reads. But listen, 
that in and of itself is a problem. The people didn't own their own faith. Their obedience didn't come from their faith. It came because Nehemiah will rip your hair out if you're not obedient, which is a pretty powerful motivator, to tell you the truth. Anytime someone's obedience is tied mainly, solely, on pleasing another person or another group of people, rather than a desire to walk with the Lord, we've got ourselves a faith problem. In this chapter... You know what the people of Jerusalem remind me of? They remind me of the kid who grows up in a Christian home and his parents take him to church and then he graduates from school and moves off to college and what happens? He's, as my wife would say, he falls off the pickle boat. He goes nuts. There's this feeling that my parents have been the, the joy suckers who have kept me from having all this fun. That's what, that's what the people in Jerusalem remind me of. Now, when that happens, that individual, that college kid owns his own sin. It's his fault. It's her fault. But here's what it shows their obedience while they were home was due to the control of parents more than it was due to a love of the Lord. And listen, please do not misunderstand me. Parents, I am not saying you should not have rules and control for your kids. You should, or you're not doing it right. But I'll say this, that there's a vast difference. There's a, there's a vast difference between being somehow controlled or manipulated into obedience and having a vibrant relationship with the Lord Jesus. They are not the same thing. And they're not even close. And this is not just parents and children. This can work between spouses. This can work between friends. And in those relationships, if we, if, you, if you're not investing as much time and effort and prayer into fostering a relationship with the Lord Jesus as you are putting time and effort into controlling behavior, you're not helping that other person, be it your children, your spouse, or your friends. We can control and manipulate desired behaviors. But if what we want is people to know and love Jesus, desired behaviors must be a result, not a goal. You know why I think it's so admirable that Nehemiah would put this chapter in his book? Because it makes Nehemiah look bad, and I think he knew it. Nehemiah, whether he knew it or not, created a system that was dependent upon him to get desired behavioral outcomes in people. This is a warning. He writes this in. He's like, look, I took three years off, came back, and the wheels had fallen off. For us, 
You know, the scary part is, though, for Nehemiah and for us, whether it's for, for me and my spouse, me and my children, me and my friends, we cannot create a relationship with the Lord in someone else. We can't do it. But is that where, do we have as much effort there as we have in controlling and manipulating behavior? That's a really good question. Do you go after the hearts of your children or do you, only, or do you go after their behavior? Do you go after the heart of your spouse or are you just interested in his or her behavior? Do you invest in your relationship and their relationship to the Lord as much as you invest in trying to control behaviors? And we cannot create a relationship to the Lord in our children, in our spouse, in our siblings, in our friends. But we can, we can still invest there. We can do, I'll, I'll steal Matt Chandler's uh, sort of picture of this. We, for parents, he said, you can't create a relationship with the Lord with your kids, in your kids, but you can stack as much dry kindling as possible. You can't light that fire in the heart of your kids, but you can stack as much dry kindling around their hearts. You can invest as much as you can around their hearts so that when the Holy Spirit lights that spark, it's got something to work with. And we can do that with our spouses. We can do that with our spouses. We can do that with our friends. We can do that in our workplaces so that everything isn't adversarial. So that they know I'm invested in your best and I, I care for you. This is not just a contest. I'm not just worried about who does the most around here and you haven't done this lately and I haven't seen any of this and I'm not getting what I want. I'm in fact, they can tell I am for them, not competing with them. So that when the Lord does turn their heart toward him, the response is not, I'm not giving that guy or that gal the satisfaction of even knowing they were right. It's just like, oh, this is why they wanted me to go toward him. So that someone, when the Lord flips that switch in someone's heart, they realize that person, my spouse, my friend, my dad, my whatever, they wanted the best for me all along. They didn't want just my behavior. The real problem for these people is they didn't own their own faith. Um, Dr. Howard Hendricks was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary for eons. He used to say that the measure of a leader is not what he does. The measure of a leader is what other people do because of what that leader has done. And that's true. So, now, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but inside your little heart, raise your hand if you have felt a time where you yourself have fallen off the pickle boat because the person you really felt like you needed to impress or please wasn't around. Right? So what's the solution? 
This is our, this is a problem. And it's a pretty universal problem. What's the solution to this problem where my behavior starts to get more and more motivated by a desire to live with the Lord, please the Lord, show the Lord. And not just so I have more evidence that I'm doing more around here than you are. I think here's how I'm going to state the solution. The solution is each of us must tend our own fire. Here's where I get that from. You've heard of the Salvation Army, right? The Salvation Army is not just the people that ring the bell outside Walmart, right? This was a, like a parachurch organization. It has spread the gospel. The guy who started the Salvation Army, a guy named William Booth, late in his life, realized what happened in Nehemiah's day could happen in his organization. He thought, man, when I die... This place might just fall apart if it's all dependent upon me. And he started telling the people this, and I love this, this is where I stole our solution from. He started telling people this, it is the nature of a fire to go out. It is the nature of a fire to go out. You must keep it stirred, keep it fed, and keep the ashes removed. It is the nature of a fire to go out, to keep it from going out. You got to keep it stirred, keep it fueled, and keep the ashes removed. How many of you have felt like at some point in your life, like, man, my fire for the Lord doesn't burn like it used to burn? That was their problem. They had, they had a desire to be behaviorally obedient so they didn't get in trouble by Nehemiah instead of tending their own fires. Okay, how do we tend our own fires? Uh, Obviously, we could write volumes and books about this. Three things related to this passage, to tend your own fire, to keep that heart fire going for the Lord. First, stay in the Word and prayer is the first step at tending your own fire. Uh, Here's another... um, Howard Hendricks quote, two Howard Hendricks quote in one sermon. He got a Bible when he was young from his mama and his mama wrote an inscription in the front of his Bible and it said this, either this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. And there is a lot of truth in that. Here's why I say this is related to this passage. Do you remember, if you've been here through the study of Nehemiah, do you remember what started the fire in these people's hearts? It wasn't building the wall. And it wasn't a miracle. And it wasn't a vision. It was when Nehemiah had a guest speaker named Ezra come and read the scriptures to him and explain the scriptures. And they got convicted in their hearts because of what the Bible said. The scriptures and talking to the Lord about the scriptures. And how my life looks like and doesn't look like the scriptures. That is the major fuel source for our fire. It always will be that way. It's the first way to tend your fire. Second, second way to tend our fire, again related to this chapter, 
to take an honest look at where your obedience comes from. When you're good, why are you good? When you're obedient, who is it for? Who is the person that if they weren't around, you probably would do things differently? And make sure it is the Lord you desire to please with your life. You know, I I thought about preaching this chapter as an allegory for a minute. It's not an allegory. An allegory is a story where the characters are symbols. Because listen, Nehemiah is, it could almost be a symbol for Jesus. Because there is one person in your life, Christian, where if you are absent from that person, your spiritual wheels will fall off. It's not your parents. It's not your spouse. It's not, it's Jesus. His name is Jesus. And if you are frustrated by your lack of obedience and the things you're struggling with and your inability don't have that fire, but your obedience is tied to someone else and you're not meeting with him in his word and in prayer, I want to say, well, yeah. He lit the fire, but it's yours. You've got to own that thing. You've got to tend that thing because it is the nature of a fire to go out Make sure it is the Lord I desire to please. And now those two things being said, to keep our fire going, stay in the word and in prayer, make sure it's the Lord that my obedience is tied to. Step three comes from this chapter two. Sometimes you must take decisive action and enter into real accountability. When Nehemiah got back in town and he noticed all of these things, and he knew the people didn't own their own faith, did he just say, you know what? I can no longer be a party to any of this. You're going to have to figure this out on your own. No, he pulled their hair out. <laughs> hey, uh, he kicked people out of the city. He drove this guy away. He said, we're going to slam the door. All right, you can't handle the Sabbath. We're going to leave the gate shut on the Sabbath. No going in and out. Part of tending our own fire, part of owning our own faith is understanding our own weakness. Paul said it this way, be careful when you think you stand because you may be the next to fall. I have to understand as part of tending my own fire, I can't do this on my own. And I, I need other people to notice when my embers are going out and say, hey, Maxwell, you might want to stir over there a little bit. Are you feeding that? And I need to be my brother's keeper and my sister's keeper and help fuel them. Uh, you know, Jesus said it this way, if you're, I, I, may, I may need to take decisive action and get rid of stuff in my life that causes distance between me and the Lord. Jesus said it this way, if your eye causes you to sin, rip that bad boy out. That's decisive action. <laughs> Okay, I'm not asking anyone to maim themselves. Put your fingers back in your pockets, okay? Um, what he's saying is sometimes you need to take drastic steps to rip things out of your life that cause distance. And Lord, okay, you know, um, just by way of conclusion before we gather around the table here, I just want to ask you 
to consider this. Just just you. You're not thinking about someone else. You're not hoping your brother-in-law is listening. You're not really glad that your wife is here because she really needs this one. You. I just want to ask you one question. I want to give you a minute to think about it. Ready? How is your fire this morning? How is your fire? And maybe what do you need to tend to to bring the flames a little higher than they have been? What step might you take? We're going to pray in just a minute before this, but I want to explain what we're, what we're going to do around the table as it relates to this sermon. Communion is not something I do that gets me into heaven when I die. You know what, you know what celebrating communion is? It's a, it's a picture, it's an action that symbolizes I own my own faith. I own this. Right? Do you know why Jesus didn't teach that parents should open their kids' mouths and put the communion elements down there? Because every person must own his or her own faith. You've got to do this on your own. But not just this. This is a symbol that I understand it was your punishment or my punishment that you took and it is your blood that saves me and we put that in our bodies to symbolize this is my faith it's the foundation but this fire though though it will never completely grow out hallelujah it is the nature of any fire to die and to dwindle bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm going to lead you in a little prayer just about your fire with your Lord before we take on the symbols of communion. Father God, I just want to ask in a special way that that you would in a special way be with my brothers and sisters in Christ as they come before you and tell you about the condition of their fire in their hearts. Hear our prayers, O Lord. Talk to Jesus about your fire. someone else that is the controller of your obedience besides Jesus take a minute and tell Jesus about that Just if, if you feel like it, just tell.
tell Jesus you, you want your obedience to grow out of a vibrant relationship with him. Jesus, it is with great joy that I proclaim that what we celebrate around this table that is the basis of our forgiveness has nothing to do with our obedience, but yours. It has nothing to do with our dedication, but yours. It is what you did alone that saves us from our unfaithfulness. I'm so grateful, Lord Jesus, that simply by believing in what you did for us, we get the blessed assurance that Jesus is mine and that my salvation is secure because my forgiveness is complete. Lord, commune with us not so that we will do better, but because you have done enough to save us press that upon us as the bread comes around in Jesus name. Amen. Now, if you if you felt anything in your heart today, if the Lord was was knocking on the door of your heart today and you felt something stirred in there, Before we leave, I just want you to hear again, it is the nature of a fire to go out. Don't let me be your Nehemiah, where you're dependent upon me for your fire, because I make a lousy Holy Spirit. Stir that thing. Fuel that thing. Remove the ashes as needed that the Holy Spirit of God might have a continual flame never goes out in your soul. Father God, thank you for your word, for our time in the book of Nehemiah. Thank you for just presenting the failure and the warning of chapter 13. God, encourage us to tend our flames and and encourage our brothers and sisters to do the same. God, uh, bless our food while we eat together, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great weekend.